Good morning. We are uh, continuing on in the season in our church that we call the season of the Gospels. It's, it's very appropriate that that's where we are because really only in the truth of the Gospel can you bring together um, the strength to handle the great joy and the deep sadness that we've just talked about. It's only through the love and grace of Jesus that, that the joy can be celebrated and that the sadness can be healed because one day life will overcome death because of the gospel. So it's, it's good that we're focusing in on the life of Jesus on a hard Sunday uh, for our congregation. We're in the gospel of Luke. Um, we're kind of in the middle section. We're going to be in chapter 15 today from chapter 9 about halfway through all the way to chapter 19 is kind of Jesus turning and heading toward Jerusalem on that last run toward the cross. Um, And we come to chapter 15 today, which is a fascinating text, three stories. You probably picked up on the fact that Jake's prayer flowed out of those three stories. One, very familiar. um, Two, that are much shorter, but related. And and as I read, I want you to pay attention uh, just to what's going on around these stories. Right? We, we think of these stories sometimes in units, these three separate stories, but I want you just to listen carefully for what's happening around as Jesus tells these stories. Okay? So this, I'm on, Luke 15, I'm going to read verses 1 to 32, and then I'm going to let you learn how to prepare a sermon. That will be the first thing we'll do. Okay? Uh, Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners... We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together with all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there's a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out. I'll go back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. 
The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, You kill the fattened calf for him. My son, father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, like I said, I'm going to teach you how to preach a sermon. I want to do a little something different as I set this text up and I want to kind of play through what I do as I, as I work with the text, it's, it's a quick lesson in engaging the text. Um, I like the term engaging actually better than reading the text when it comes to the Bible because reading you can do from a distance. Reading, you can read a newspaper and put it down. If you actually engage with the biblical text, it means you're kind of living in a relationship with it. You're, you're letting it influence you and you're uh, digging in. And, and so uh, this is going to be a quick lesson in engaging the text. Because we want to see the scriptures not just as books that we read, but as a living entity, I think, the word, Jesus is the living word that we interact with. So there's a few things that I found that help me when I'm trying to engage the Bible. So we're going to do that on this text, and I promise we'll get to applying it and learning about it, but first we're just going to look at it. It's important as you read, especially in the Gospels or the Old Testament narratives, when there's a story going on, the first thing it's important to do is put yourself in the context. Put yourself in the story. It takes some imagination to do that. Uh, last week I was at, at, at church with my daughters and the, the pastor preached uh, the miracle of the turning the water into wine uh, at the wedding in Cana and Galilee. And it was a good sermon. He taught it very solidly, but never once did he pull me into the text and say what it would have been like if I'd been at that wedding. What, what would have been the questions I was thinking? Right? And I think it's really important that we put ourselves in the context. And to do that, we have to look at clues in the text. And most of the text is communicating these three parables, right? And you can put yourself into the parables if you want. What would it be like to watch the shepherd go? Or what would it be like to watch the lady sweep? Or what would it be like to be at that party? With That's all good too. But I, wanna, I want you to put yourself in the context of where Jesus is telling the stories. And there's really only two verses that help us do that, verse 1 and 2, right? Let me just find something to put my eyes on. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, while I was listening to the sermon on the wedding of the king in Galilee, Jake was preaching about the eye is the lamp of the body here. And if you weren't here, you need to hear that sermon. Because one of the things he was saying is that, that the light within us helps us to see the world as it is. 
the light of Jesus. And, and Jesus cautions that the light within us not be darkness. That, that the way we look out is often how we interpret the world. And what you see here in this passage is a perfect example of this. It starts, the, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear what he had to say. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, were muttering. This guy hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. Do you see how what is in them, a hunger for the truth or an anger and a sense of control, is, is shaping what they see? You can see the contrast. And as you're in this scene and as you watch it play out, you've got to realize the reason tells these that Jesus tells these stories is that diversity in the first two verses. The tax collectors and sinners are listening. The religious people... The religious people, the people that you would have found in synagogue or in church on Sunday morning, are, are upset and angry because he's spending time with these people. So Jesus then tells three stories. And as you read the three stories, the next thing I'll do after I've kind of tried to put myself in the context is I'll listen for repetition, listen closely for repetition. And there's lots in these three stories. In verses 3, verses 8, and verses 11, it, it talks about... Sub uh, suppose you had these things, three, three settings where someone has something. A shepherd has sheep, a woman has coins, a man has two sons, right? There's that repeated thing. And, and that thing is lost. The sheep wanders off, the coin gets misplaced, and the son takes his inheritance and he leaves. All three stories have these repetitions. And all these stories have this idea that, that something that belonged to the main central character, the first person you see, gets lost. And then again, in all three stories, when that lost thing gets found, there's a phrase, rejoice with me, or get the stuff to throw a party. There's this idea of rejoicing, and it's communal. It's not just, it's not just the shepherd being glad he found the sheep. He calls everybody around, and the woman is not just happy she found the coin. She calls her neighbors, and the man's not just happy his son's come home, but he throws a party and invites everybody to come. There's also similar wording in that. Verse 7, rejoicing in heaven. Verse 10, rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Verse 32, we had to celebrate and be glad. We had to. He was dead and is alive again. So that repetition is there in all three stories. That's important. Jesus is trying to stress that something in that repetition. But once you see that, then, because there is so much repetition, you start watching for similarities and differences. Okay, what, what's different about these stories? Well, in verse 3 to 7, there's the lost sheep. Now, this is something alive, and there's a leaving, right? The sheep is, is, is gone, and then the shepherd leaves the other sheep behind to seek out the one lost. There's a finding, rejoicing community. That's, that's, that's there. Verses 8 to 10, the lost coin. All of this is very different. It takes place within a house. It's not out in the country at all, right? And coins aren't living things. It's not like the coin wandered off. She may have misplaced it. It dropped and rolled behind a chair. Who knows? But it's not something living, but it's valuable still. And she searches all over. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the whole house until she finds it. Once again, communal, rejoicing. Now, in verses 11 to 32, there's quite a few differences because this is a story all about human beings. The son of a father, and the son makes choices. If you, if you Kenneth Bailey is a guy, if you ever want to get really good insight to this parable, 
look up a guy named Kenneth Bailey who lived in the Middle East for years and applies what it would have been like in that culture for the youngest son to ask for his father, his inheritance from his father. It was equivalent to saying, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Because I, I, you're not important to me, but the money that you have is. And, and the son makes a conscious choice to take that money and to leave. It's not a sheep wandering away and getting lost. It's not a coin falling off and rolling. It's, it's a conscious choice to go. And in this story, the father doesn't go seeking, does he? The shepherd goes to look for the sheep. The woman goes to look for the coin, but the father does not. That's a different twist. He waits and he watches. And the change then happens in the son. And he, he realizes, I want to go back. I want to, at least I could be a hired hand, a slave or a servant. A very different twist from the first two stories. The father welcomes him home, throws a party. There we go back into the same. But there's another angle on this one. There's the older brother who doesn't come into the party, which once again in Middle Eastern culture would be an affront. It would be an offensive thing to the father for the, the older son to stay out. It would show the culture, the division within the family. And then the father goes out to appeal to him, and then the story ends. There's no resolution like in the others. So as you look for this repetition in the text and look for the ways that the stories are similar and different, you start to see some pieces come together in the puzzle. You start to see some themes emerge. And flowing out of the context, you being in the story, looking at what's the same and what's different, we start to see all three of these stories are about the love of God for lost things. The love of God for lost things. That's the theme, and, and threads flow through all three of these stories that say that. God loves lost things. And he goes to great lengths to regain what was lost. They help us to dig into these aspects of this love for God. First, first thing we see about this love is it's a love that risks. It risks. In verse 4, the shepherd leaves 99 to go find the one. Now, I've read lots of commentators that say, oh, that's totally normal. That's what would happen. But that seems pretty risky to me. I mean, lose one, count your losses. You still got 99. You go off to find one, who knows what you're going to have when you get back. There's a risk to it, right? And in verse 12, the son is given the inheritance. Why did the father not just say no? You realize that that inheritance wasn't in a bank account. It was land and animals and possessions. So the father had to liquidate that son's portion of his estate and give it to him in cash. But, but the father did that. That's a huge risk to give it to this young son who's obviously willful and stubborn and wants his own way. And, and, and the love of God always takes risks. That great theologian, Garth Brooks, uh, sang a song, right? He, he's reflecting on a, a dance in high school with this girl that he had a crush on. And, and, and it never worked out. They never got a relationship, right? And, and he says, you know, I, as I look back, I, I realize I, I didn't have to do that. I, I, I kind of let my heart get involved in that dance, and now it hurts. 
But he says, I, I could have missed the pain, but I would have had to miss the dance, right? Great theologian there, good biblical, just kidding, not great theologian. But anyway, love, love always involves making yourself vulnerable. And that's a risk. It says that something has value to you. And if something has value to you, that means if you lose it, it will hurt. Love always involves risk. I've checked it out with my uh, Irish experts, the, the Murphys, and, and there's a phrase that's common in Ireland. I'd never heard it before, and I, I'm, gonna, I'm so scared to attempt an Irish accent. Where are they at? I'm gonna, uh, chance in one's arm. Chancing one's arm. And I, I, anybody, have you guys heard that phrase? All the Irish people say, yes, we've heard that lots. It, it comes about because in, in, um, in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, there's a door, a wooden, a wooden door hanging there. I can't move my hands in front of my... There's a wooden door in the cathedral with a, a... It's got a hole in it that's been hacked in it. And there's a story around this door that these two, back in the late 1400s, these two Irish families who both worshipped together at St. Patrick's Cathedral were in the middle of a feud, and one family was about to kill the father of the other family. He ran to the church, and he locked himself in this uh, building on the church property, and, and the other family surrounded, his men surrounded him, and they were going to kill him because of this feud. And as, as the time went on, as this siege went on, the guy outside actually, I think, maybe started looking around, realizing, what am I doing? I'm here at the cathedral. We worship the same God, and I'm trying to kill this man. And so he called out to the, to the other guy, you know, I, I'm not going to do anything. We're, we need to end this. There'll, there'll be no treachery today. Well, the guy inside, what did he think? Oh, you're right. I'm going to come out the door. You're going to cut off my head. So, so what the guy outside did was he hacked a, a hole in the wooden door, and he chanced his arm. He put his hand inside. And the guy inside grabbed his hand, and they made peace. Right? And this whole idea of chancing your arm, taking a risk, that's inherent in love. That's just the reality of what it is. After losing his wife, Joy, to cancer, C.S. Lewis wrote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Because to love is to be vulnerable. The love of God takes risks. What is the incarnation? It's the biggest risk of all. It's God becoming a helpless baby. The, the, the love of God risks. It's also a love that searches for what it values. The shepherd goes looking. The widow lights a lamp and sweeps the whole house looking for the coin. There's this sense of mission here. We've got to go find this. This love searches out what it values. There's a, a focus of attention, a centering of desire. All of a sudden, one thing becomes the most important, finding this thing that was lost. And the rest of life rotates around that priority. This, this happens, and you've had this happen in your life. How many of you have been going about your life, and something happened that all of a sudden brought your focus to a central point? 
only one thing was important. Could be a tragedy, could be a health crisis, period of loss. Something's happened where everything else in your day that you 10 minutes before had thought were your priorities got put way back on the back burner. That, that's this sense that what, what is lost is the single most important thing. I'm going to go find what's lost. This, this clarity of mission, it's driven by the love of God. All of a sudden, the most important thing is seeking and finding, bringing that thing home. Mission. A clarity of mission and purpose flows out of the love of God because it it risks and it seeks after what it's trying to bring home. And mission takes a lot of forms. Sometimes the love of God is active in pursuit, right? We saw that in the first two stories. But for those of you who love a prodigal, you also realize it's a love that waits and welcomes. The father's actions in the third parable are very different. He doesn't chase the son and compel him to come home, right? The younger brother is a person, not a sheep, not a coin. And people are really different than animals and objects. You cannot force a person to come home. We all realize that as we raise our children, right? There's that point where all of a sudden you don't have control that you used to have. And and the power that you have in their life has to come from some other place. So the father waits. In fact, the idea that he's watching because it says he sees his son a long way off. And there's four things in the text, all signs and indicators of this welcoming home. First of all, it says he's filled. He sees him a a long way off and he's filled with compassion. It it actually says his his guts. That's the Greek term. It's it's related to that. He feels it down deep in his gut, this compassion for his son. And he runs to him. Now, this is where Ken Bailey will help you, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but, but you've got to realize in this society, there, it was very communal. And, and the father would have been brought shame by the fact that his youngest son for, took his inheritance and left. Right? That would have brought shame on the whole family because you just don't do that kind of thing. And, and in that culture, there was a, I'm going to say this wrong, a, a kazaza ceremony, especially in the, Jew, in the Jewish culture, where if... if the worst thing you could do is to take Jewish inheritance and go and lose it to the Gentiles. And and if that happened, when that person came back home, the the elders of the town would take this big pot filled with corn and some other things, and they would meet that person at the gate, and they would throw down the pot and break it. And they would say, because of what you've done, may you be broken and cut off from this community because you've offended us all by taking what was Jewish and squandering it with the Gentiles. Now that, my friends, is why the father ran. The father couldn't wait for him to come, because once that pot was broken, the whole community reacted. So the father hikes up his robe, once again, a disgrace for the the patriarch to run through the the streets showing his bare calves and ankles, (laughs) because he wants to get there first. And that whole kazaza ceremony is the reason, too. The son wants a job. Why does he want a job? So I can earn back the money so I'm not cut off from the community. I want to earn it back, Father. But the Father meets him out there before that can happen. He embraces him. This acceptance before 
the rejection of the community. The father takes the lead and says, this, is not, this son is not going to be cut off. And he kissed him. The, the Greek form there is over and over and over. What an amazing picture. How the father took the shame on himself in order to welcome his son back who would have been outcast by the, by the whole community. And, and all, of these, all of these things happen even before the confession of sin and the asking for a job. It's not conditional. Oh, okay, he's, he's learned his lesson. It all hap- that all happens after the acceptance, the hug, the kiss. Because the final thing that we see about this love of God for lost things is that it's a love that's rooted in the lover and not in the loved. What do I mean by that? It's a love that's rooted in the lover. The lost sheep shows no love for the shepherd. It's the shepherd that loves the sheep and, and, and a coin that's incapable of loving it. But the woman has value in the coin, so she seeks it out. And the love here is rooted not in the son's return, not in the son's repentance. It's rooted in the fact that the father loves him. And God's love for lost things is totally bound up in God, not in our worthiness, not in our humility, not in our repentance even. It's free. It's unconditional. And we, as much as we like that idea, we have trouble with it too. We want to earn it. We want to do our part. But what he's saying here is that's not the way the love of God works. It's rooted in God. Three powerful stories to make a point. Now, we've engaged the text. We've, we've seen things. But after we engage, how do we respond to the text? How do we drive it home? It pushes us to respond, right? We can read. We can put down the book, walk away. But when we engage it, when we feel some of the things going on in the story, we have to respond. That's what James says. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And as we look at this text today, as we tease out these themes about the love of God, as we, we feel the impact of the moment that these short stories were shared, what are the responses? Well, the first, I think, has, well, I'll give you a few. You can have all kinds of response. That's one of the things I like about this. I don't have to have all the answers. God may be saying something to you that I don't mention here at all. That's fine. He can say what he wants. But, but one of the ones I see has to do with what I'll call the bookends of the text, verses 1 and 2 and verses 29 to 32. The muttering Pharisees and teachers of the law and the older brother. It's a call toward clarifying the roots of our identity. See, the religious people in verse 1 and 2 were basing their acceptance by God on their own righteousness and their works and how well they did, how, how much they had progressed in the Jewish faith, the way they kept the law. And, and therefore, since they were basing their, God's love for them on that, obviously these tax collectors and sinners did not deserve the love of God. And the older brother feels cheated because he's been there and he's worked and he's done everything his father said and he's never offended him. And this younger brother has wasted and embarrassed, wasted the resources, embarrassed our family, right? And, and those two pictures, the, these 
Pharisees and teachers of the law and the older brother. That, that's, that's why Jesus tells these stories. That's why he leaves it hanging with the older brother is to say to the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, are you coming into the party? Are you coming in? See, this is where the source of the love, that, that last point we talked about a minute ago, is so important. Our acceptance by God, I want you to hear this clearly, is rooted only in God. It has nothing to do with anything we've ever done or ever could do. It's, it's, it's rooted in him. And we may, we may say that, we may know that theologically, but we often live as if it's the other way around. Because how many times have we elevated our own goodness and looked down on others who didn't do quite, so, quite the same? You know what you're doing then? You're, you're giving yourself value because of what you've done instead of rooting it fully in the love of God. And that's what they were doing. That's what the older son was doing. I've served you faithfully. Why would you love this kid? But listen to the words of the father in verse 31 to the older brother. My son. <laughs> my son. You're my son. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. Your identity is not in the fact that you've served me forever. Your identity is in the fact that I'm the father and you are my son. Henry Nouwen um, died years ago, Catholic priest, lovely man. And uh, one of the key ideas in his teaching, he, he uses this phrase, being the beloved. And it's had a profound impact on me because what he says is until you realize, first of all, despite everything you've done or not done, once you realize that outside of all that, you are loved by God. Once you can realize that you are the beloved and receive that love, then all of a sudden that frees you to love other people. But as long as your receiving the love of God is contingent on something that you've done or something that you've, you've thought or some way that you've lived, he says you'll never be able to let it go because you're always going to rank people. And, and once you realize that you are the beloved of God, it reorders everything in your life. And before you start wondering about that, this is thoroughly biblical, by the way. I'm not, I'm not quoting now on as if to supersede Scripture. <laughs> this is what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. There is nothing that you lack. He goes on, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. When you had nothing to offer, you were loved. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. See, basing our identity to any extent on our own efforts or wisdom or faithfulness or even humility and repentance, once we base God's love for us on that, we've twisted our very identity. We seek to elevate ourselves over others. What's the scripture say? There's, and, and, and as we do that, we get afraid. That's why we elevate. That's why we look down on others, because we're afraid. And that's the older brother. I'm afraid if I really welcome my younger brother back, I'm going to lose something. Paul says, you're not going to lose something. You're my son. Everything I have is yours. But one of the reasons we put people down and lift ourselves up is we're afraid that we'll lose. 
And what does the scripture say? There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. If, if you are the beloved, if you realize that God loves you despite your brokenness. I had a friend that used to just tell total strangers, there's nothing you could do that can make God love you any more, and there's nothing that you could do that can make God love you any less. And that, that's a profound truth. That doesn't mean we just give up and don't worry about anything. Obviously, when you're loved that way, you're... Your life transforms, but it transforms because of the love, not because you're trying to maintain it or keep it. See, fear keeps us out of the party. Fear keeps the older son from going in and celebrating the renewal of the relationship with his brother. And and if we give in to that fear, fear will keep us from joining God on mission. Because God's looking for what has been lost. God's looking. He's drawing things to himself. The religious leaders are too busy judging the merits of Jesus' listeners to be aware that these are Jesus' listeners. You'd think, right? Here's these tax collectors and sinners, and they're following and listening to a Jewish rabbi. Would that not be a good thing? No, they're too busy evaluating their merits to maintain their own status to realize these people are listening to Jesus. And so Jesus tells this story to remind them that God's at work to remind them that the shepherd and the widow are seeking and the father is waiting to welcome just like, and all of that is mission, and that's what God's doing. In John 5, Jesus says, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. John 5, 17. Every second, God is seeking the lost. God's trying to draw them to himself. Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. This is the mission of God. Some of my concern coming out of COVID, I've just been reflecting and praying about this lately. And I think it's a normal reaction to our past couple of years. But in the past couple of years, church has become, I don't necessarily think through anybody's fault, it's become a consumer-oriented thing where we go to get teaching, we go online, right? Because we can't really engage in, in relationships the same way. We can't really serve in the same way. So church gets shrunk down to this place where I go to a worship service or a Sunday school class or a, a, a sermon or, or I see the kids program, and it becomes way more of a consumer thing where I go to get what I need. But I think what, what started this was the closing of the highways was a good reset button because all of a sudden, and we had to be the church on mission. It wasn't about staying home and watching it on a screen. It was about serving and protecting and loving and giving and engaging. And I think we need to think very carefully as we come back to normal, hopefully one day, that that not only do we get what we need here, but we share what we got. Mission is a huge part. We we have these four commitments. You know, we, we, we come here to learn. We come here to worship. We want to live in relationship with each other. But the other commitment is is mission. God is seeking lost things. He's seeking to reconcile the world to himself, and he's calling us to be a part of that. I believe 100%, based on the way I read the scripture, that every one of you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit living in you in certain ways that fulfill God's mission, and that looks different. But what we say when we say we commit to mission here is we want to, find, we want to help you determine what it is. How is it has God called you to be a part of the kingdom of God? And, and how can you do that? And maybe that's in a program here. Maybe that's in something totally outside. Maybe it's over the fence with your neighbor. But we want to affirm and celebrate it because guess what you're doing? You're going out and finding what's dead and bringing it back to life. 
because of the Spirit of God. We want to celebrate those things. All of those things involve mission, seeking, loving, and waiting, and welcoming. And each of us has a role to play. And, and here's what fuels that. You've got to get this. It comes back to that being the beloved. We have to, to make sure that we're finding joy in the love of God. Once we get that our identity is based not on our proficiency or our smartness or our giftedness even, or how good we are at anything, once we get that it's based on the love of God, then guess what? Joy flows out of that. Because if it's based on the love of God, which is in God and not in me, then I can't lose that. If we don't get that, we worry, we fear, we fret. When other people get elevated or accepted, we feel like we're losing something. There's that parable... I'm wrapping up here. The parable of the workers in the vineyard, right? The guy goes out in the morning and he hires somebody, says, work for a denarius for the day, so that's a day's wage. They come and then he goes a few hours later and a few hours later and a few hours later. And, a few, and then one hour before closing times, he brings some other workers. All of them, he said, I'll pay you a denarius for the day. Or no, the first one, he said, I'll pay you a denarius for the whole day. And all the others, he said, I'll pay you what's fair. So then he calls the five o'clock workers who got off at six and he pays them first in front of everybody else and he gives them a full day's wage. Remember that story? And then he calls the 3 o'clock workers and the 12 o'clock workers and the, finally the 9 o'clock workers are thinking, we're going to get a lot more because we've been here all day. And he gives them exactly what he said, a denarius. And they're mad. They're mad. And he says, I, I told you I was going to give you a denarius. I've not cheated you at all. And then in, in Matthew 20, 15, he says, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money or are you envious because I am generous? Yes, that's what they are. They're envious because he's generous. And, and my hope and prayer for us is that we will never be envious of the generosity of God. If anybody he welcomes in, we should be celebrating that, man, because he welcomed us. The key to joining God in mission is to find the joy of, God in God, of God's love for each of you in, in, our, in our brokenness, in our shame, and to let that spread out through our lives. Psalm 90, 14. Love this verse. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. See where it starts? Satisfy me, Lord, in the morning. Help me to remember your unfailing love because then, my whole day, I can sing for joy. We have nothing to lose. Our lives can be extensions of, of that love, the joy of an identity that's bound up in the love of God and not our ability to do well. It sets us free. It's, it's our invitation to come and celebrate every single thing God does. All flowing out of, not the service we've done for God, but the overwhelming love that God has for each of us and for the world. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. May we never be envious of the generosity of God. Because you know what? That generosity is what, we, what brought us into the family. We need to celebrate that everywhere we can. Let's pray. God, we, we don't want to be the older brother. We don't want to be the teachers of the law and Pharisees, but so often we get sucked into these fears, these insecurities, that somehow if we let you love people that seem to be wandering away, that somehow it diminishes your love for us. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love.
God. As we come to this table today, remind us that this is where your love flows out of. That, that it's a gift, that it's offered, that we're welcomed. And help us to, to nourish ourselves with that unfailing love and to live a life of generosity and grace toward all around us. In your name we pray. Amen. Just as we close, I, I, I just want you to take a minute. I want you to think about your own life. I want you to think of a situation where you feel stress or fear. You feel like somebody's out to get you. Just, just picture that situation in your mind. And, and what happens in those situations is we seek to protect ourselves, we seek to control. Now, obviously there are situations where we do take steps to get to safety, but I'm not talking about an abusive situation. I'm talking about a situation in a relationship where there's fear, in a work situation, whatever, where there's fear, and we're trying to control it. We're trying to take charge to eliminate the threat. And then I want you to listen to what John says in 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, I'm not saying the situation is going to resolve to how you like it. But I'm going to say you've got to give that situation and realize that no matter what happens in that, that the love of God is what's going to hold you and keep you in the middle of it. And, and as you do that, it's going to change how you react in that situation. As you begin to lose the fear and rest in the love of God, the way you see that situation is going to change. I'll leave you with Psalm 90. This is my prayer for you this week. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Amen. <laughs>